Well, good morning once again. Thank you, Eric. Uh, thanks for reading that long passage as well. Uh, if you have a Bible or a phone or something like that that you can read along, we are in the book of Revelation if you've not been here. We're doing a series through the book, and we are at Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, the church at Thyatira. Hear again God's word this morning. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray. God, again, as was prayed earlier, we do pray that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to our church right now. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when my son was... In fifth grade, he decided to play football, and he signed up for peewee football, and the problem was where we lived, teams were built around the school that you went to, but his school was where all the professor's kids went from the campus, and they didn't care much about football, and so we didn't really have enough to make a team. So he got put on a team called the Steelers. And the Steelers were basically a hodgepodge, uh, sort of an island of misfits team. A lot of them came from very difficult and challenging backgrounds. There were not many fathers involved. It was, it was, half the challenge was just getting them to get on the field when they were supposed to. And so the Steelers didn't have a great season, especially when we would play the annual Toy Bowl champs called the Broncos. And the Broncos had those dads. 
and they were all coaches, and they all had the matching gear, and the Broncos had all the Under Armour stuff and the cool stuff, and the Broncos did what the coaches told them to do and actually went where the coaches said to go, and so the Broncos always won. And I have to say, even after we finally got our act together and started playing better, and we met the Broncos in the playoffs for the first round and got demolished by them because we ate a lot of nachos before the game. True story. I would look longingly at the Broncos and say, I'd like to be a part of that group. I'm tired of losing. I'm tired of being on the Steelers. I'm tired of this mess on the sideline. I got to clean up every game tired of wondering if so-and-so is going to be here, if their parents care, tired of having to correct people. So much so that when the Broncos called the summer before the next season and said, hey, we like your son. We'd kind of like him to be on our team. I said, done. Hmm? See, we all want to be on that team, if we're honest. Maybe not in theory or when we're talking theology, but really in our heart of hearts, we don't want to be on the losing team. We don't want to be on the Steelers. We don't want the mess. And we don't want to deal with all that the mess involves. We don't want to be left out. We don't want to be unparented. We don't want to be excluded we don't want to be on the bottom and yet what the bible says and what we see really in most of these churches that john is writing to and what jesus is always saying to the church is god is calling the church to be on the bottom and very often what you will experience as the church is what it feels like to be left out to be judged and evaluated by others and not seen as worthy to not be in. And that can come from the world and that can come from worldliness in the church and that can come from worldliness in your own heart saying that you really don't measure up. There's an evaluator and you don't meet these standards. What we're going to see today is simply this. Those judged by the world and found unworthy are the very ones that the Bible says will one day judge the world. Embrace being on the bottom. There is no other way with Jesus. That's what we're going to see today. The text is about judgment in a word. The first point is this. Jesus judges, evaluates, just like he does every church in the book of Revelation, and he commends this church. Look at verse 19 again. Or 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God 
who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Remember what John is doing at the beginning of each of these letters. He is reaching back into chapter 1 where he saw this glorious figure that is taken out of the Old Testament, mainly out of Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, one who was like a son of man, who was both a king, a judge, a, a high priest, and he saw this glorious image of this son of man who had power to judge, Daniel 7 said. He sits in the assembly and he judges. And he reaches back into chapter 1, he says... This is the person, and he uses the phrase son of God, and we'll see why in a moment. But it's the same idea as the son of man. And he reaches back and he brings this image of this one who judges, this divine judge who has eyes that are like a flame of fire. Remember, it's like one who can see right through you into the bottom and purify and refine like the song that we sang and take care of the things that shouldn't be there and, and bring forth the things that should. This is a divine judge whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is not feet of clay, kingdoms that are destroyed, but this is one of the strongest elements that you can find sturdy, immovable, solid. These are the images that he's trying to get at. So he's reaching back into this, this picture out of John chapter 1 that he saw of this glorious divine judge and he's saying, look, church at Thyatira, this divine judge, verse 19, what? Knows you. He knows you. Listen to what he says. I know your works, your love and faith, and your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Do you see what he's saying here? Each letter we've seen begins with this phrase, I know. For example, he says to Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. He says to Smyrna, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. Last week we saw Pergamum. I know what it's like to dwell where Satan dwells. I know where you dwell. And then he says here, and again, I want you to see this picture. It is the divine glorious judge who says to the church at Thyatira, I, the judge, evaluate the church and I commend you. We've heard it over and over and over, haven't we? That Jesus, this divine judge, commends something in almost all of these churches. And notice what he doesn't commend. He doesn't say, you've got the greatest programs in town. you got the greatest preacher in town. you got the greatest Sunday school. You've got the greatest youth group. you got the greatest mission trips. you got the greatest... All of these things, those things are fine. But he says, what I'm commending, I evaluate and I commend about these churches is your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. And most commentators point out that these are in connection to what they're going through, which we will see in a minute. But understand this, they're going through some difficult situations 
And what, the, what they're doing is their heart is producing love and patient endurance and faith living by what they don't see with their eyes, but living by faith and serving. In other words, what the outside world is seeing produced in them is love, service, patient endurance. In other words, we cannot control the world and what it does. We cannot control worldliness in the church. Sometimes people are going to lob grenades at one another, and it's very tempting to get in the middle of that. And he says, Thyatira, I see you. I see you. And I commend the way you are witnessing to the world around you. I commend that. Jesus evaluates them and makes this judgment. He says, I know and I see your love and your faith and your service. This past week, I was asked to lead a Zoom discipleship hour, did some training with some missionaries who are a part of Reform University Fellowship Global. These guys are in Colombia. They are in the Ukraine. They're in Tokyo, Senegal. And I always say koala, but that's not how you say it. Koala Lumpur. Sorry, I butcher these words. They're in difficult places where the church isn't very important. And this is what they all told me before I got off the Zoom call. They said, hey, can we tell you something to say to your church? I was like, uh, yeah, sure. And this is what they said. They said, tell your church to be grateful. He said, in some of these situations, we've got a big, and this is not, I'm not, this is, I'm not making big, evaluations here we've got huge catholicism that's sort of dead and sort of over the top charismatic stuff and very little else he said y'all got all kind of good churches over there and you don't even know it and i said man thank you for saying that i need to hear that because i can often criticize or complain or this isn't working right or this isn't going right. And, and we need to see, it's like God is saying this over and over. Jesus wants us to hear this. I commend you. I know what you're going through. And, and it's a small, one application here is part of being in the church now is a picture of what's going to happen in the future. Think of it this way. If you were in Christ and in the church, then you were created by God to be a recipient of His great love. And your future, if you flip ahead to chapters 21 and 22, is glorious. You are the bride of Christ who will come out of heaven dressed in a, in a dorn in this beautiful dress. We saw this yesterday at a wedding. What happens when the bride comes in and they start that boom what happens everybody stands up and they see the glorious bride and I'm telling you at that point nobody's criticizing her what's going to happen if you do you're going to be thrown out I guarantee it and Jesus says that's you one day this this little taste of commendation that he's giving right here 
He's going to look at you. And I know people left the church, and I know people strayed, and I know people deconstructed faith, and I know all that. I know John Piper's youngest son criticizes him all online. You hung in there, and you endured. Well done. The host of heaven will cheer. Secondly, Jesus judges and commends the church. Secondly, the church here is judged by the world. Verses 20 through 22. I have this against you that you tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess as a teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. We saw a little bit of this last week. It's sort of similar. But here's, here's, here's the explanation of what is going on. I'm going to do my best to explain this very concisely. What you had in Thyatira was you had a, a, an economy, a local economy that was governed by trade guilds. Think union. And if you work, let's say you were a baker, you were a cobbler, you were a seamstress, they were known for their linen. Where was Lydia from? Thyatira, right? She was known for her purple linen, the purple dye. And so let's say you were in one of those groups. That's what you did for a living. You had to, in order to get work, you had to be in the trade guild. But to be in the trade guild, to be a member of the trade guild, each trade guild had a god or a goddess that was associated with it. And so if you're going to show up to meetings, you're not just going to talk about, hey, where are you working today, or who's plumbing over there. You worshipped. You see? You see the dilemma for these new converts? Well, can we worship Jesus and the God or the goddess? Well, what if we're not sincere about it? We, we just kind of go through the motions. Can we, can we do that? And very often what happened was there was an after party, right? Not just a membership meeting, but there was a party and an after party. And it very often involves some sort of idol feast. This wasn't Paul saying, hey, you can eat a hamburger that they use for that after they're done. It, there's nothing special about that hamburger. He's saying, don't go where the hamburger is because there is worship of this idol. The whole thing about sexual immorality, one of two things is happening. This is either literally temple worship, and if you read the Old Testament, you know about that very often, what you thought was if we want fertility and security and provision in our life, we want God to bless the land, which brings forth the crops, and there we can eat and we can trade and have all this market-free economy, right? If we want that, then we've got to do something to get it. And so they would reproduce fertility rights. Or what he is saying, he's simply saying spiritual adultery. What he's saying is you can't have Jesus and other gods. What he is getting at is syncretism. The idea that I can worship Jesus and worship the gods of my culture. That is why he refers back to Jezebel. We don't think her name, and we're not even sure this was an actual person. It could have been a prophetess in the church, or it could have been that he was personifying a group of people who were teaching that, hey, it's okay in the church. Yes, let, we worship Jesus resurrected, but you also can do this. Because you know if you don't, what's going to happen? You're going to lose the job. You're not going to get the job. 
You're not going to have money. So there was, there was economic security and provision that were at stake. Well, I love my family. I've got to feed my family, sort of exalt the family. I'll do what I have to do. I'll bend the rules. But there was also an idea of social, social security, not the kind with the government today, but this sense of social inclusion. Well, who's that, who, who's that Bob over there? He think he's too good for our gods? He think his God is the only one? Really, he believes that? Who does he think he is? And so you can, you can sense like, well, I'm going to be left out. I'm not going to be invited to those parties. I'm not going to be invited to those get-togethers. They're going to be doing all these things, and I'm not going to be included. So there is this fear of not having enough, but there's also this fear of not being enough with your surrounding community. Let me illustrate this one. I don't know if I've told this story here or not, but when I was in the eighth grade, I went to a new school. And you know being in the eighth grade is not a good idea to go to a new school. The only thing worse is being in the seventh grade and going to a new school. Because you go and you don't know anybody. And right, you just want friends. You want somebody to accept you. You want them to bring you in. And you'll do anything to get in. That, that's where all of this leads, right? Well, I wasn't being brought in. And there was a group of guys led by a kid with a mullet named Sid Beasley. And they were rough and tumble. They were always getting in trouble. And all the things my parents had taught me and all the things my church had taught me totally went by the wayside because I just wanted to be included. And they were out playing chase one day and they would go under the bleachers and they would come back around and I saw them come and I'm like I'll just get on the tail end and they'll never know I wasn't included they'll just think I'm a part of the group and I did yes it was funny but I was in eighth grade surely we don't do these things when we're older but I did but I didn't know there were like these little metal bars under the bleachers and metal bars that were parallel to these bars and I went to jump this bar, and as I did, my head went, bap. We came out from under the bleachers. I was hurting, and I was hurting, and I, was, I knew something good wasn't happening, but I wanted to be in the group, so I ignored the pain. Until hmm? one of the kids looked at me and said, you know you got blood running down your head. Still got a good scar up here. See, God is saying to us, I know the pressure here of not being included, of being left out, not being accepted. This isn't just for middle school. You've got to believe me on that. This fuels so much in us. It can, it can fuel why we don't feel included in a church. Well, people are kind of rejecting me. They're not including me. It can be in the culture, it can be in society. And one more application from this text. Look at verse 24. This idea of these deep things of Satan. What's he getting at here? You had a person or a group of people who were going with this idea, this teaching about this deep things of Satan. What does that mean? Two things that people talk explain this. First is that they had an unhealthy longing for the occult 
In other words, God isn't glorious enough. God isn't beautiful enough. God doesn't give us enough in the Bible. And he does say some things about demonic stuff and Satan. So let's just start studying that. And the next thing you know, it leads to this unhealthy fascination with these things. If you have listened to the Mars Hill podcast at all, there's one called Demon Trials. That sort of thing, it could be what they're getting at. But secondly, and I think this is probably more what is going on in the context in other words, what he's saying is, hey, you know, we're not going to just talk about the main things in the Bible. Justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption. We're not talking about the gospel. We've got to talk about things that are like more important than that. Or, you know, we've got this secret knowledge, this, this esoteric sort of thing that we're studying, this little small little thing about theology over here and and, and you really have to be intelligent. You got to be smart. You got to be. Re- this is kind of for the elite. Come on in if if you think you can handle this, right? Now, this can take the form of some sort of special revelation or special experience, but it can also be dressed up in theological language. And in our circles, this is very prevalent. But it it isn't so much even the theology, it's the idea that if you don't understand this, you're not in the inner ring. You must be missing out. Your gospel is not enough. It's why Paul was always saying the biggest danger in the church is to add something to the gospel. And sometimes it can take these little minute paths. Listen to how One Puritan said it. Preachers should not rack their wits with curious or disputable matters, for so we will distract and tire our people. That age of the church, which is most fertile in subtle questions, is most barren in real religion. For it makes people think religion to be only a matter of cleverness in tying and untying of knots. The brains of people inclined this way are often very much hotter than their hearts. That may be what he's getting at, this secret, deep things of Satan. Do you know what Paul says is the secret, the key, uh, the main thing? that we do need to go deeper and deeper into in Ephesians 3. This is how Paul says it. He says, I pray that you would have strength to go deeper into the knowledge of what? Some secret deep thing, knowledge of good and evil that only a few people have. No. The love of Christ for sinners. That's what God wants us to go deeper into. That's the secret Jesus says this. What does Jesus do? He says you got to cut that stuff off. It's serious. It's serious. You hear this language, don't you? Look at verses 22 through 23. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds like the judge is making a pronouncement here. And you can feel it. Behold, look. I gave her time, verse 21, I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
Probably that's her spiritual adultery. In other words, the idea that you can have two spouses at the same time. I can have Jesus and someone else. Try that with your marriage and see how that works. He's saying you can't do that. And I gave her time to repent of that. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. So I told Murray he was going to preach Thyatira. What is Jesus doing here? He's saying this is serious business. He's judging the Jezebelness, not just in the world, but in the church. This is happening in the church. And it's not pretty. That's why he's so serious about it. He's referring back to 1 Kings. If you remember, King Ahab thought, well, this was a great idea. If I want to get along with the other nations and I want to kind of toler be tolerant and be this tolerant community, I'm going to marry Jezebel, the daughter of, you know, she's basically a priestess of Baal, another god. And that's okay. We can, we can be pluralistic and we can have these other gods and, and things will go well. And they didn't. In fact, 70 of her children were all killed. That's probably what this reference is to. Now, I know this is tough. Listen to how C.S. Lewis said this. When he was talking about the judgment of God, he said, and gentleness in Jesus is a great thing. Trust me here. But he says this, gentle Jesus, my elbow. The most striking thing about our Lord is the union of great ferocity with extreme tenderness. We don't admire the extreme of one virtue unless we see at the same time the extreme of the opposite virtue. One shows one's greatness not by being at an extremity, but simultaneously being at two extremities and filling all the space in between. We are on the right track getting at the real man behind all the plaster dolls that have been substituted for him. This is the appearance in human form of the one God who made the tiger and the lamb, the avalanche and the rose. He'll frighten and puzzle you, but the real Christ can be loved and admired as the doll cannot. We see his justice here, but what do we also see? We see his mercy, don't we? You see what he said? I gave her time to repent. If this were happening very specifically and uniquely in this church, I guarantee the elders pretty quickly be like, we got to deal with this now. Jesus is saying, I let her hang around for a while. I let some of this stuff stay in my church. I show mercy just like I did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though we think judgment about that passage, what happens in that passage is God said, I'm letting it get to this certain measure and then I will judge. But until then, he permitted a lot of sin to remain in that community. He was showing mercy and being patient, even, even grabbing Lot by the arm and, and bringing him out, though he wanted to stay and be destroyed. 
Because God will show mercy, and mercy will triumph over judgment. Look at verse 22. He's saying, look, it's not too late unless they repent. If they repent, I will show them great mercy. As a matter of fact, it is my mercy that will lead them. This offering of mercy, that is what stirs the heart and leads to repentance. Jesus is a judge, but he is a tender and a merciful judge that longs that all people repent, Peter says. Do you see the mercy of this judge? I'm telling all my bad stories today, but I've told many of you before, when I was 16, I got in a lot of trouble. I had to spend a night in jail. It, it, it got me. Harder than that was having to go before the judge. And I walked into his office, and I saw him, and I was terrified. He had all the power to say, this is what is going to happen to you. And of course, I started crying. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to allow you to go free. That. A powerful judge that has every right to show and exact his justice. Absolutely. That's something else to wonder at, to marvel at, even to have fear about, but a judge that has all that power and that right and that authority that looks at you and says, I will show you mercy, O foolish 16-year-old. Go and respond to that. See, it is, it is our instinct, even as Christians, to think that when we blow it, when we sin greatly, when we do that again or respond in that certain way again, that what God does is He does what we, we tend to do is put people at arm's length. They get further and further in a mess and it's harder and harder for us to go after them because we, there's just such a mess there. We want to be separated from them. And what does God do? He looks at distress he looks at sin. He looks at even the suffering it brings. And he moves toward us. And he shows mercy. He actually finds repentance irresistible. You see? If they repent. He finds repentance irresistible. Lastly. The church will judge with Jesus. Verses 24 through 29. Again, what is really the issue? What is going on? What's the, what's the pressure that they live with every day? If I don't do this, if I don't go down this syncretism route, I am going to not be provided for and I won't have social inclusion. My longing to be included and let me, let me just say this, that is not a sinful longing. In the garden, God embraced and included and loved and splurged on Adam and Eve, walked with them in perfect communion. Our desire to be affirmed, yes, that is the word being thrown around. 
But it's on our terms that we want to be affirmed, isn't it? But God says, no, it's on my terms that I will affirm a people and accept a people and embrace a people. Listen to what he says in verse 24. To the rest of you who don't hold this teaching, I don't lay any other burden on you. Look, as I told the Gentiles in Acts 15, it is not good for you who used to be idol worshipers and to participate in that to just go back to the bar and have another drink. If you're an alcoholic, that's the worst place for you to go. Don't go there. But I'm not putting any other burden in you. You're free in Christ to serve God. You're my people. You're included in my church now. Hold fast, verse 25, till I come. Hold fast. Keep keeping on. We've been saying it every week. Keep keeping on, like he says in chapter 1. Blessed are those who keep this word. Living in light of the return of the king and the judge of all the earth. And then look, look what he says. This is amazing in verses 26 and 27. He says, you, the church, you who conquer and keep my works until the end, I will give you authority over all the nations. He's referring back to Psalm 2. And he's including this rod of iron thing. It's really a shepherd's rod. He's saying, you who were judged by the world and even these little secret group, groups in the church that you couldn't measure up to and you were somebody took that staff and they separated you and said, you're a goat, you're a goat, you're a goat. And you were just, you were just excluded by others. And you gave up your reputation and you may have given up finances and economic privileges and power and status and station you who were judged and found wanting by the world and worldliness in the church, you who hang in there, one day will judge the world. You will have a staff in your hand. You who were shown mercy that triumphed over judgment will separate sheep and goats. Do you believe that? 1 Corinthians 6 says that we will judge the world. Finally, in verse 28, he uses this image of a morning star. When we were in campus ministry in college, we had this song we sang, Star of the Morning. Nobody knew where it came from. It was just a fun tune, and I won't sing it for you, but I think it must come from here. And the idea was it was the first star, probably Venus, that that came out to show that day was coming. That yes, it's dark, it's hard, but daylight is coming. There's the morning star that this is going to be true. Which means you might have to live in this life at the bottom like the three guys. And notice how he said it over and over when Eric read it. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He probably said it ten times. Why? Because we, when we are put in the fiery furnace, we need to know that God knows us. He knows our names, but more importantly, what did it say? There was one like a son of God in the furnace with them. Hence, son of God. See, how does a Christian know 
that he will be judged. And, and this is, if you're not a Christian or you're struggling with the faith, how in the world can you say, I can stand before the Son of God, the judge of all the earth, who sees deeply into me, can read my thoughts, knows my motivations, and can find me and declare me worthy and accepted and included and affirm me. Only if that Son of God is in that fiery furnace for you. Because when Nebuchadnezzar looked, what blew him away was there was someone else in the furnace. And that is what the Bible teaches us, that Christians, even though you may live under trials and persecutions and exclusion, you will never, ever, ever have to face the judgment of God. You are only going to be commended by God at the end. Do you understand that? The books that he will open on your behalf are going to be all your beautiful works that were refined and you thought you were struggling so much and they were so refined and made beautiful in Christ that he's going to go, look what Joe did and Sarah did and Sally did. Because the judgment that we deserve was on Jesus that is the Christian's hope and faith. Let's pray. Lord, allow us to see one in the fiery furnace who is judged for us, that we may be acquitted, that we may be not just acquitted in a legal sense by a judge, but, but splurged with love and mercy by a compassionate judge who would go to the depths of judgment so that we are not just acquitted, but we are embraced and loved and included in Christ and in His church. But, oh God, we live in a world and we live with pressures. Lord, we pray that You would ground us in the gospel through Your Word that those who hang in there and keep Your Word unto the end will receive authority from you, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.